So we have been uh, in this series called Gospel Family Tree that is going to take us uh, straight up and through Christmas Eve together. Uh, and it's really based out of the genealogy of Jesus in the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. If you're not familiar with that, Matthew starts his whole story about Jesus showing the lineage of Jesus. And this series uh, is meant to take several of the people from that genealogy and uh, tell their story, and then show how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that story. Now, if you were with us last week, thanks for coming back this week. Last week's story was a little bit risque, right? Uh, and I remind you all, it's in the Bible. I didn't make it up. Uh, we looked at the story of Judah and Tamar, and I'm sure you had interesting conversations around the dinner table later on Sunday night. Uh, but we saw God's redemptive power, His His grace that is greater than our brokenness, and what hope that is for people like us. And today we're going to look at another very interesting story. Uh, a little bit risque, but not quite a, as bold as that. And it's the story of a lady named Rahab. Uh, many of you might be familiar with her story. Uh, if you're not, before we get to reading it, let me give you some context to what's happening uh, in this section of the Scriptures. So, uh, you remember that Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And uh, God came and miraculously delivered His people from slavery. Uh, brought lots of plagues upon the, uh, the Egyptian people and Pharaoh's household because Pharaoh wouldn't let... Uh, the Israelites go. Uh, and then God miraculously parted the Red Sea. The Israelites walked through it. It uh, closed in on the Egyptian army. Uh, and freedom now belonged to the Israelites. But they had a journey to go from where Egypt was to the land that God had promised them. Uh, we call it the wilderness. It was meant to be a somewhat short journey. It ended up taking them 40 years because they were not, what should we say, the most obedient, uh, the best listeners. Uh, instead, they were uh, people who tended to be quite entitled, right? Uh, and so lots of grumbling. Uh, and so uh, now they eventually make it to the edge of the land. And they're, uh, they're on <clears throat> the eastern side of the Jordan River. Uh, so if, you, if you're ever trying to visualize in your mind what the, the promised land or what is now Israel uh, is, uh, you can kind of think of it like this, right? Draw a small circle, that's the Sea of Galilee. Draw a line coming down, that's the Jordan River. Draw a little oval at the bottom, that's the Dead Sea. And you have the eastern boundary of the land of promise or of Israel as it, uh, I don't know modern geography, but Israel in general, right? And so they're there on that eastern border. They're looking into the land. Uh, Moses is, is no longer with them now. It's Joshua who has risen to become the leader. And he's about ready to go through again. God's going to part that river for them. They're going to cross in. And they've been given the commission to cleanse the land of the people who are living in it. Uh, those people are called Canaanites. Uh, they derive their history all the way back to a guy named Ham. Ham is the father of Canaan. Ham was one of the sons of Noah. If you're familiar with that story, uh, Ham wasn't the greatest of people. And so you can, you can kind of read that story again and understand. And it creates this whole lineage uh, of brokenness that becomes the Canaanite people. So Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, has been given the task of taking possession of the land. 
but it means wiping out the Canaanites that are in there. Uh, We don't have lots of time to speak apologetically, but I understand that this kind of storyline, it just doesn't fit with our modern sensibilities. Why would God want to do this? Why destroy all these people? What's the idea? And so let me just give you a a little bit of background so that you can see it in a more uh, full uh, panorama view. God's heart was not for destruction of the Canaanites, uh, and so much so that God relented for a long time before finally delivering judgment on the Canaanites. You remember that God promised the land to Abraham. We started our whole series with this guy. But He also says to Abraham, you're not going to get it for like at least 400 years because my patience has not yet expired with the Canaanites. Right? So the 400 years in which they could repent and turn to God. And then even as they're marching through, as we'll see in the story here in a minute, the Canaanites are well aware of everything that's happening with the Israelites as they are on the move up towards this land. They hear about Egypt. They hear about the Dead Sea. They hear about the great victories over Sihon and Og on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They understand what's happening, and yet they're still not willing to put their swords down. And then, even if you read farther into Joshua than we will this morning, you find that the first initiative into the land of Canaan is a place called Jericho. And there's an interesting battle strategy for the Israelites in Jericho. You remember this story, if you're familiar with this at all? God says, hey, you're going to go there, and every day for seven days, you're just going to march around the town. And then on the seventh day, you're going to march around the town seven times. And we have to ask ourselves a question. This is so weird. Why would God do this? And the best answer that I can give you is, it's grace. God is continuing to try to offer grace to these people, and yet they're unrelenting in it. So, uh, I understand that it still can be troublesome to understand this, but, but know that this is a God who is quick to patience, not to judgment, and is acting in unbelievable grace. So, context of the story. There we find ourselves. Before Joshua sends the people into the land, he decides that he's going to send two spies ahead of them to Jericho. This is the big fortified city, the first place there. He wants to to scout it out. There is debate as to whether Joshua should have done this or not. This is not a situation where God told him to do this. This is a Joshua decision. You can decide for yourself if it was good. But we can quickly discover that the two people who were sent in as spies, they're not good at their jobs, right? Do you know some of those people at your workplace? No, I'm just kidding. Don't go there. Be a good coworker, right? The spies are not good at their jobs. First of all, they find themselves in a brothel, and we can ask ourselves questions all day about how they get there. Uh, lots of scholars will want to say, well, that's the place where they can find the information they want. That's a place to blend in. And that's one answer. Another answer is they weren't great guys, right? You decide. Um, The text doesn't tell us. But we know that they're not good at their job because they're quickly discovered, right? The one job responsibility of a spy is what? Don't blow your cover, right? These guys get into town, and immediately everyone knows, right? And the king is there after them. These guys, they're not good at their job. And it just so happens that there's one person in Jericho who is going to save their bacon, right? And her name is Rahab. She's going to save them from utter destruction. And what we find as we read this story is 
Rahab becomes the model for how the Canaanites ought to have responded to God's arrival at their town. And she also becomes a model for how we, in this day, ought to be responding to God and His presence as He marches around the walls of our fortified lives. Make sense? Joshua chapter 2, if you have a copy of the Scriptures. Uh, If not, fear not. We've got it on the screens for you. Feel free to just follow along in that way. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute. Right? (laughs) You're already like, this doesn't make sense. Uh, Her name was Rahab, and they stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. Right? So they're sent in verse 1. They're discovered in verse 2. You see, they're not good at their job. So the king of Jericho sent the message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord, uh, that's the word Yahweh, right? The Israelites God. I know that Yahweh has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. So see, they all know what's going on. We have learned how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Incredible. Now then, please swear... By me, uh, to me, by the Lord, that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she led them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the man had said to her, the oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not 
be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is even laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you have made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Incredible story. So here's the question, right? Why? Why does Rahab do what she does? What makes her decide to do this? Because what she's doing is actually taking an incredible risk. If she's discovered uh, being a traitor in this way, in any which way, she's done for and likely all of her family is well. What would lead her to make a decision like this? And the only answer is that Rahab has been transformed. She's not who she was before. In fact, in Rahab, we have the epitome of what conversion looks like. In Rahab, we have someone who is transformed in her faith, in her identity, and in her family allegiance. She's transformed in her faith. Think about this with me for a minute. When, uh, when Rahab, or when the Israelites are coming upon the land, Rahab is known as what the Israelites would call a, a pagan, right? We, some people throw that language around here. Uh, not around here, but around in our day. And the idea of a pagan is someone who worshipped lots of gods, right? And, and was far away from the true God. And this would have been Rahab's faith. Some have speculated, though we can't know for certain, that her vocation as a prostitute would have possibly been linked to the worship of one of these gods. We don't know that. It's not in the text. But it's completely plausible because that happened almost all of the time in pagan religions. She would have been someone who was devoted in some way to these gods, dependent upon them. But now as we read the text and as we get to the end of the story, we find that uh, her view of those gods has been radically transformed. And that her faith is no longer with them, but with the God of Israel, Yahweh. And think about this for just a second. Think about how profound this must have been and the implications that have to happen to make it be so. That she has come to believe that the God of the Israelites has done and can do things that her gods have never and will never be able to do. That's the conclusion that she's come to. And her conversion story looks like what every conversion story looks like all the way up to this day and time. It starts with hearing, and it follows to believing, and it's completed with a change of allegiance. She hears. She's very careful to say. She's heard a lot about the mighty acts of God. What He's done for His people. And I think incumbent upon that, inherent in stating that is, and my gods have never done anything like this. They don't part seas. They don't bring plagues. They don't deliver. They don't win massive battles. Your God is something radically different. 
But hearing, and this is really important for us, is not just a, a me-centered reality. Right? It's actually a God-centered reality. Because we hear because God makes Himself known. Does this make sense? You need to think about this in just a way. We often read stories like the Exodus uh, or the Red Sea event and think, wow, how incredible that God has done this for these people. But that's actually a short-sighted view of who God is. He certainly has done it for these people, and He's in covenant relationship with them, and He's delivering them, but He's also done it for the whole world to announce to the whole world that I am the true God. And Rahab is processing with this. And she's making sense of this. And she's wrestling through these realities. And then, in a crazy way, as these spies show up uh, in her house, in essence, God begins to knock directly on her door. Right? We have in Joshua chapter 2 uh, the truth that God shows up even at brothels. Right? How incredible, isn't it? That God cares enough about someone like Rahab that He doesn't just expect her to hear about something that happened all the way down in Egypt, but He knocks on the door of her brothel. In the same way that He pursues us radically. You need to be overcome by how much God loves you and is desperate for you. So much of the world speaks about judgment, judgment, judgment. We'll talk about that in a second. Sin and death, are judgment is coming on them. But God's heart is for, for salvation, for rescue. He's pursuing. He's, he's pleading with. And here we have a God who knocks on the door of a brothel. Incredible. But then Rahab has a decision to make, doesn't she? She's heard, and God's there. But what is she going to do? How is she going to make sense of her whole life and everything she's previously ordered her life around? And seemingly, her decision is somewhat quick because she's overwhelmed with the truth and the transcendence, yet personal nature of God in her midst. And she believes. Listen to her language. She continues to call Him your God, right? Because she's referring to Him as the God of Israel. But she makes a powerful statement. Did you catch it? The Lord, right, she says, your God, Yahweh, your God, is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now we think of that in a very dualistic way sometimes, right? Well, there's heaven, the spiritual realm out there, and the earth, the physical realm here. And that's a fair way to think about it. But what Rahab is actually saying is the beyond expanses and the here expanses. Now in her world, and in her worldview, there was different gods for all kinds of different things. And what she's saying is, there's actually one God for everything. Do you see it? This is her faith journey. This is where it comes to for her. And she understands that the, the things that she's tried to orient her life around aren't delivering the freedom and the life that she longs for. But this God can and will so much so that she actually puts herself into a precarious spot to be with Him. Think about that. This is incredible, isn't it? And then, it's allegiance. We have in this story someone who changes teams. You know, 
in the sports world, that can be frustrating. Uh, in the story of Rahab, this is exciting for us, isn't it? We have someone who suddenly is for the Israelites and not for her own people. We need to understand that faith is not just, and conversion itself, is not just an intellectual assent of truth about God. See this? But it's actually something that moves us to change our allegiance and how we live our lives. I understand that is an ongoing reality, absolutely, because we're called to continue believing it every single day more and more and more. But true conversion is not just marked by, okay, God is who He says He is. It's actually marked by God is who He says He is and therefore, I order my life around Him. I submit my life to Him. And we have here a perfect story of what that conversion looks like as Rahab submits herself to God and completely changes her allegiance. Why does Rahab help them? She's been transformed. Transformed by faith. But it's not just faith, it's also her identity that is transformed. Think about this for just a minute. We said at the outset of the story, or before the story begins, Rahab would have been understood to be someone who was pagan, worshiping many different gods. We could also understand from the beginning of the story the identity that Rahab would have had. Uh, And in many ways, if not in every way, the picture of Rahab and how she's living her life is the polar opposite of how God intended the human life to be lived. So we have the paradigm of Genesis chapter 1. What do we have in that? That humanity is meant to live in close proximity with God and to work in such a way to bring His kingdom and His ideas to the ends of the earth. Right? We're image bearers who are, are given uh, means and, and opportunity to, to bring the way of God to bear on all the world. And what we have in Rahab, and I'm not pointing her out as anything different than any other broken human being, you and I included, is someone who is not living in unity with God, who is living her own way, and in many ways, because of her profession, I think this speaks to the sense of the story, is actually working in opposition to what God is intending to do in the world. But look how we find her in the midst of the story. Look at the transformation that has taken place. She's now saying, your God is my God. He's the God of heaven and of earth. Right? We have the connection of Rahab to God. But what's more powerful to me than even that in this story is, you immediately have Rahab becoming one of the greatest witnesses of who God is. And who is she, quote-unquote, witnessing to? Failed spies. Right? The guys who ought to know this stuff. you know. And I'm not saying they were weak in their faith or anything like that. But she's proclaiming things that they weren't proclaiming. Right? They weren't leading with that to try to get her help. She was leading with that to tell them she's going to help them. Fascinating to me in this story is, guess what? We get Rahab's name. You know the names of the spies? We don't know them, right? Because Rahab is the one we're meant to model ourselves around, not the spies. She becomes a powerful testimony. But listen, not only to the spies, but also to her whole family, right? 
She's going to bring them all into this. And my guess is maybe even other people who she'd want to find refuge in her house. Her whole reality of being human has been transformed and redeemed back into what God has intended for humanity. But it's not just identity and faith. It's also family. But think about this, right? She's not just a pagan. She's not just a prostitute. She's also a Canaanite, right? By her ethnic background, she's not part of God's family, which was sons and daughters of Abraham. But we remember something about that. From the beginning of God's call on Abraham's life, he said, listen, I'm going to bless you. You're going to prosper. But it's so that you can bless others. See, the people of God from Abraham on have always been meant to live in such a way that who God is is on full display for the people of the world so that they might come and be part of the family of God. This was never an us-against-them reality. It was a means of enveloping the whole world into the family of God. This, this conversion of Rahab was part of God's plan from Jump Street. It was never Jews and Gentiles. Just like it's never church people and those who are out there. It is not us against them. It's us who are called to live in such a way that people would want to come and be part of this family. How incredible. And so Rahab, who's a Canaanite doomed for destruction, instead, we're told as the story goes on, finds fullness of life amongst the people of God. She says she lives amongst the Israelites for the rest of her days. How incredible is this? And how is it accomplished? By a scarlet cord. Now, we could read into this in all kinds of ways, and perhaps those read-ins are true, but we don't have them front and center in the text, right? Uh, What we do know is the scarlet cord is a marker. And so her house is marked by God. Do you see this? And enables her inclusion into his people. In the same way that during the plagues of Egypt, the the houses were marked so that God would pass over them, right? By the blood of the lamb. Is that why the cord is scarlet? Maybe, but we don't know. What's important is that it's marked. In the same way that the Israelite men were marked by circumcision to be included in God's family. And now she is marked by God in this profound way, so that she can be part of this family. But friends, she doesn't just become an also-ran. She doesn't just become on the fringes of the family. She ends up getting married to someone from the line of Judah. How about that? A reformed prostitute marrying into the line of Judah. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And guess what? She becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David. King David. King stinking David, right? Is Rahab. Do you see what God is doing and what God is capable of? But she's not just the great-great-grandma of David. 
She's also a foremother of Jesus himself. What Matthew writes in his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We said just last week, right, the genealogy largely just includes the men. But every once in a while, who say, who was the wife of or who was the mother of? Because Matthew wants that story included. We talked about Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. How'd you like to be called Ram? Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Once again, Matthew, not needing to include her, puts her in there because the story matters if we're going to understand what Jesus has come to do. Right? Forget Salmon or Salmon or however you want to pronounce his name, right? He matters very little. However, this story of Rahab is centrally important to the lineage of Jesus. Why? Because it's a powerful story of faith. That if you're going to be included in the family of God that's now available through Jesus, how are you going to be included? Just like Rahab was. Through that kind of faith. No matter what you've done, where you've been, what the story has been up to that moment. You have that opportunity. And it's, a, it's included because of the radical story of grace. In the same way that in the story of Rahab, we are introduced to a God who is willing to knock on the door of a brothel, we have in Jesus a God who is willing to knock on the door of every single human heart. A God who takes on flesh Himself to enter right into the mess of the world. Forget two spies. Now it's God Himself. And also we have in Rahab a reminder that this story has never been Jewish-centric to begin with. It's always been about the redemption of the whole world. So where is Jesus then in the story? Well, we can point to two things, right? Jesus, in many ways, is the fulfillment of the story of Rahab. And in some ways, you could even say that the house of Rahab personifies Jesus Himself. That in the midst of destruction and chaos, those who are in the house are saved. Now, isn't it fascinating that they make careful attention to say about the house of Rahab that it was part of the wall. Now, I understand how ancient cities were constructed. What I do know is a couple chapters later, that wall is coming down, right? That's how the Israelites get into Jericho. They march around it. They play loud brass music. Right? We know that's capable of bringing down walls. And the walls come down. This house that's in the wall is somehow preserved. The people who are in it are safe, right? Think about that in the chaos and the brokenness of this world that we live in. That it's the cross of Christ at the epicenter of the chaos and the brokenness of the world that becomes the new and full house of Rahab that anyone who finds their refuge there survives and is rescued. It's no longer marked by a scarlet cord, but by scarlet stains of blood that was shed. 
Now, if you zoom out and think of the storyline of Rahab in a broader way, you find that Jesus himself is Joshua. We say that Joshua is the leader of the people of Israel. He's about to march into the land. He's about to cross the Jordan River. And he's going to come to Jericho and lead a great victory there. Did you know that the name Jesus is a transliteration? Uh, It means Yeshua. It's a Hebrew word that means what? Joshua, right? His name is Joshua because he's the ultimate fulfillment of Joshua in the same way that even though she was marked by a cord and given a couple of promises, what Joshua was going to do was going to happen. He was leading the charge, and it was Joshua who saw the cord and who enabled uh, her her preservation and, and her protection in that way. It was Joshua who fulfilled the promises that were made to her. In the same way, it is Jesus who fulfills the promises that God has made to those who believe. And Jesus is not just a new Joshua. He's the ultimate Joshua. Because He did not just come to bring destruction or punishment to sin and death. He dealt with it once and for all by taking it on Himself. Jesus, who lives a perfect life, comes not simply to bring condemnation on the world, John 3.16 and 17 tell us, but instead to rescue the world. How is it accomplished? Listen to how the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians reflecting upon this very thing. God made Him, that is Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Translation, the only way to deal with sin and death once and for all was for Jesus to take it on Himself and defeat it through the cross and the resurrection. Building a once and for all house like Rahab's that anyone who would be joined to Jesus might find salvation. Jesus is the ultimate Joshua. And so the last question then is, so who are we? Right? These are the questions we ask when we read the Scriptures. Who are we? And if you've been following along, you know the answer already, right? We are the Canaanites. That's who we are. And we are faced with a decision. We've heard the stories about God, but now He's knocking on the door. And we have a choice. What kind of Canaanite are we going to be? Are we going to be the ones who say, "Uh uh-uh, who batten down the hatches and who resist and resist and resist and continue to live our own way? Are we going to follow in the footsteps of someone like Rahab? Are we going to be people who though we've lived in rebellion to God in the past, now say, God, I see that You are the God of heaven and earth. And embrace Him in fullness. That's the choice for people like us when we read this story. Perhaps you've never been faced with that central question before. Perhaps you've heard stories about God before, but you've never personally thought for yourself, oh, What does this mean for me? Well, consider this morning an opportunity to deal with that. An opportunity to honestly reflect internally, not just about 
what God has done or can do, but that God is actually love you so much that He's pursued you to this place. That you're here in this place or watching at home, not by happenstance, but by God's providence because He lovingly has pursued you. And can I urge you then to believe, to receive it, and to change your allegiance. Here's the story, right? In our world, we, we like to think about people who have faith or people who are, believe other religions or atheists, right? And I don't think that's a fair representation of our world. I think our world is actually deeply religiously pluralistic. Is that we tend to be people who worship lots of gods just like Rahab. They don't have names like Rahab's gods might have had, but they have names like this. Success. Money. Influence. Fame. Security. And sometimes a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this. But maybe this morning is when you honestly reflect, how's that working out for you? Are those gods delivering what they've promised? What do they look like in light of the true God? And what would it mean for you to change your allegiance? But friends, as you well know, it's not just a one-time thing, right? We believe. We believe that, that if, you, uh, if you believe... What, excuse me, if you believe God and believe what He's done in Jesus in, in defeating sin and death once and for all, and if you receive that, we believe that's a finished reality and you're now part of God's family uh, and, and nothing can take you away from that. We believe that. But we also believe that we keep living as broken people in a broken world and are continuing to make death or life decisions every single day. Right? Rahab versus the other Canaanite type decisions in every single aspect of our life. And these are allegiance-based decisions, aren't they? Who am I going to live for in this moment? Am I going to live God's way? Or am I going to live in light of these other gods? So even if you've heard this Gospel story for the thousandth time today, and you're like, I believed this sincerely 40 years ago. We praise God for that. You need to believe it again this morning. Because the landscape is no different out there chaos, brokenness, walls are coming down, and there's only safety in life in one household. And we're faced with this decision time and time again. So as we are people who live in the brokenness, here's how you have hope. If you have truly believed this Gospel, the New Testament Testament writers remind us that we too are marked by God. There was one household that looked different in Jericho. And there are lives that are marked differently in this world. We are not marked by circumcision. We're not marked by blood on our doorframe. We're not marked by scarlet cords. We're marked by the Spirit of God. Listen to what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, And you also were included in Christ, right? Into that house of protection when you heard the message of truth, the Gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit. 
Incredible. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. My guess is Rahab honestly believed everything she said and felt somewhat good about the pact she made and hung a scarlet cord and seconds later began to think, oh man, I hope this works. Right? (laughs) And guess what? We have honest faith, don't we? We believe the Gospel. And yet, we see the headlines and we live the headlines. And our world is broken and there's destruction all around us. And unless and until you continue to look at the mark on you by God, you will be swept away by the chaos around you. It's the Spirit of God who guarantees your protection until the end. You are marked by God. You are in the family of God through Christ. In the same way that Rahab went out and got her dad and her mom and her brothers and her sisters and her nieces and her nephews and hold them all into that house. I don't know how big or small it was, right? It was, you know, they're all in there together. In the same way, we have been enveloped into the family of God through Jesus Himself. This is the Gospel. This is why we have hope. We don't have hope because of political elections. We don't have hope because of vocational achievements. We don't have hope because we're morally good or superior to other people. We have hope because God has lovingly pursued us and has marked us as part of His family. Can I pray with you?